Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Thanks for being part of the show, and uh, particularly a big fat thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart uh, to all of you who help promote the show. And uh, as I keep on telling you, the numbers don't lie. You are doing a great job every time you tell somebody else about the show, every time that you send somebody the URL or tell somebody how to listen to the show, um, you're not just bringing one additional person because a goodly proportion of those that you encourage to hear the show, subsequently, they go ahead and encourage others. And so the growth is exponential. And uh, not only can I see it, but I can take great joy in it, for which I owe you a great deal. Thank you very much indeed. I'm preparing this show uh, on the eve of the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks of September the 11th, 2001. And it's hard not to look back, see what's happened during those 20 years, and to ask ourselves, well, are we better off? In other words, after World War II was fought and won, the, the war ended 1945. By 1965, was there any question that the world was better off than it was at the time the, the war ended, or the war began in 1939 for, uh, for, for the British and 1941, December the 7th, 41 for Americans. And uh, you could say, fine, 1961. You know, was was the world a better place twenty years after the start of the war, or twenty years after the end? Of, yeah, it 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 was. It really was better. Um, Japan was no longer rattling swords and threatening the stability of the Pacific. Japan was America's biggest trading partner, and uh, Germany uh, was no longer. Uh, a growing martial power, threatening Europe and the stability of the world. No, Germany, 20 years after the war, rebuilt building Volkswagens and uh, BMWs and Mercedes for the whole world, as well as really owning the, uh, the, the, the market for machine tools. Um, you know, Russia... One, one could say that Russia, um, you know, the situation of Russia 20 years after the war, well, Russia certainly gained enormous power during World War II. They also lost. Uh, they lost more people than any other belligerent of the war. But uh, all in all, I think not hard to say that the world was a better place 20 years after World War II. After the terrorist attacks in September 2001, 20 years later, it's 2021. Is the world a better place? And it's hard to say that. Is America better off? Uh, that is easy to say. No, absolutely not. Uh, virtually every aspect of life in America has deteriorated since 2001. Uh, not all of it just due to the so-called war on terror. 
uh, some of it obviously due to the government's reaction to the coronavirus, <clears throat> but uh, no, it's not. Now, again, I just want to stress that uh, although there is no shortage of bad news coming out of the United States of America, that doesn't mean that America is rapidly becoming a place where it is hard to live a good life or to build a good life. That's not true, because the choice one has is not America 2021 versus, shall we say, Sweden 1970. Uh, no, America 2021 is measured against other countries in 2021. And although uh, America is on the decline uh, dramatically and probably irrevocably, it's still a better place in which to build a life than many other countries. Now, there are other countries in which it's good to build a life as well. Uh, I will mention, just because I, I know a friend from South Carolina, uh, who recently decided to go and live in Israel with his family. So, all right, okay. Um, and you may say, well, um, is he Jewish? And the answer is no, because Israel is a far, far more successful and viable country in which to build a life today than it was 20 years ago. But America is a lot less viable. It's still okay. It's still pretty good. It's still better than many other countries. But there are alternatives, obviously. The, the point is that just because America is on the decline doesn't mean that the world is falling apart. And I've done a show in the past, uh, some months back. It's an important show, if I may say about you know the world coming to an end and i explain how frequently the world comes to an end if you listen to the pundits and the talking heads oh the world's coming to an end things are never going to be the same again and uh, that's that's not exactly how it really does work but um, uh, after 9-11 there was very much a thought that cities were doomed uh, because 9-11 showed how vulnerable cities were to terrorist attack. And um, it, it, people, people said, thoughtful people at the time said, oh, it's, it's all over with cities. Uh, nobody's going to live in cities and nobody's going to build tall buildings in cities anymore after the horrors of that Tuesday morning, the, uh, the, 9th of, uh, the 11th of September in 2001. But, you know, that's not what happened. Cities are still growing, and not only are they growing outwards, but they're growing upwards. Tall, very tall buildings are still being built all around the world. Cities have a lot of resilience in them. There is a great deal of accumulated energy in a city because of the proximity of the people and of the number of the people. And so... It is true that if you take a look at cities today, and particularly with what happened over the last 18 months with the coronavirus, um, people say, you know, we got to leave the city. Overly expensive housing, uh, conflict over gentrification, uh, low levels of upward mobility, in other words, long-lasting, lower-income lower, lower income, um, 
outrage over brutal policing, long prison sentences for drug crimes, etc., etc., etc. There are enough reasons for people to say, oh, you know, cities are uh, are over. We're entering a new period of humanity where people are not going to live in the cities. Uh, all of that is unadulterated bilge water. Cities are not going anywhere. Uh, new York City is going to come back. It's not going to come back exactly the same. It's going to take a certain amount of time, but uh, there will be people in New York City and it will continue to grow because cities are where human beings can achieve the most. Now, uh, why are cities so uh, problematic in areas with so many awful situations and why is there there's so much corruption in cities well because this is the sine wave of uh, human achievement meaning that as far as things can go in the upward direction they can also go in the downward direction uh, a fire a fire can cook food and it can melt metal in order to cast metallic objects. Fires are really useful. And if a fire goes wrong, well, it can certainly cause problems. It can burn a house down. It can even burn a neighborhood down if things go really bad. However, you cannot compare fire to nuclear power. The energy available from nuclear power is far greater than from a fire. But the downside is also far greater. If anything goes really wrong in a nuclear power station or with nuclear energy, it goes really, really, really wrong. So um, cities are like that. The potential in a city is far greater than the potential in a town. If, if you have talent to sing or to dance, uh, you'll be able to further that and exercise that much more in a city of a big population than in a beautiful rural village of only a few hundred people. If you're hoping to build a business or open a store, you'll be able to achieve far more in a big city than in a small town. If you want to find your life mate, there's more people in a city. You've got more chance of finding. You'll meet many more people. And so you'll find somebody whom you will choose to live the rest of your life with. In almost every area, the potential in a city is so much more. However, the potential for the negative in a city is so much more as well. And right now, in many cities in the United States of America, as well as in other cities around the world, the cities have grown very big. Uh, the infrastructure has not grown. City government has become corrupt. And instead of using tax money for maintaining and building infrastructure, they use it for uh, building fiefdoms and uh, paying their friends and relatives. I mean, this is not just Baltimore, USA, or Detroit, USA, or Newark, USA. Uh, this is many cities around the world. So, we're in a bad phase. What's What happens? What's the difference? The city is designed. Um, as the founders of the United States of America spoke about the American experiment, uh, it, was, it was built for a moral people. And cities are like that as well. When cities are populated by good moral people who are self-regulated, 
by the rituals and rules and restraints of religion, then cities can be absolutely incredible. And if, on the other hand, a, a city is chiefly populated, governed, and run by secular fundamentalists, uh, then it goes the other direction, and uh, things can be pretty awful. So 9-11 did not bring about any great improvements in America or in, or in Newark. Uh, the collapse in Afghanistan sort of brings the period to an end, and uh, is America safer from terrorism than it was then? I think uh, no responsible person would say yes. I don't think any thoughtful uh, political analyst would say that America is safer from a terrorist attack today in uh, 20 years after 9-11 than it was, shall we say, in September, the beginning of September 2001. Um, well, the TSA, we've got the TSA now, right? That protects our air travel. Anybody who thinks that uh, the TSA is what has prevented uh, attacks on any further aircraft, yeah, not exactly. I, I don't think anywhere close to that. And so uh, it's not, uh, it's not a, a great situation, but it's still an okay situation is, I think, where I would put it. If you haven't already made a note of my website, please do, because we are making a number of new resources available, and there are also existing ones. Uh, the website has a search function, and so I must tell you that of the questions that I receive from many of you who write in with questions, I'd say well over half are questions that I've already answered on the website, and you can find the answer to your question right there. The, the website is rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay, R-A-B-B-I, rabbidaniellappin.com. And... Uh, we also have a, a parallel sister website called wehappywarriors.com. And you can get to one from the other, so uh, it's, not, it's not so bad. wehappywarriors.com. And one of the things that I encourage you to listen to is a half an hour of Bible teaching that I do called Scrolling Through Scripture. Uh, it's quite free. You go ahead and uh, please enjoy it. And the reason that it's valuable is because what I do in scrolling through Scripture is provide insight through the lens of ancient Jewish wisdom into Scripture in a way that has always served as a strategic manual and as a practical guidebook to uh, my brethren. And it serves in a very effective way as a guide to making certain that the decisions one makes in life are the best ones, ones you're not going to look back on with regret. And, and that's a very serious thing. You know, if you're 22 years old and you're a listener, or you may be younger or a little bit older, and I say to you, you don't want to look back at something with regret. 
it probably sounds weird to you because it's all way into the future. But uh, I get a lot of letters, and I mean really a lot of letters, from people saying, I wish that I knew when I was 18 or 19 the things I have learned from you in the last three years. You know, I wish I knew these things back then. And uh, people write about the regrets that they've had, and I understand it. A regret is one of the most painful of human sensations. And uh, regret is minimized by not making wrong decisions and making right decisions, doing what you should do when you should do it. That's, that's what it boils down to. And uh, for the Jewish people, the Torah, the, the, the Bible has always served as the guidebook to how to do all of this most effectively. So to get a sense of the first little bit of Genesis, as a matter of fact, the first verse itself is worthy of considerable analysis. And that's what I do in the free video teaching called Scrolling Through Scripture. So, uh, there, you know, there may be a link to it in the description of the show below. Also, you will... Uh, look for it on the website scrolling through scripture you find the free uh, half hour uh, show and uh, just gain access to how the words particularly in the lord's language leap off the page and become a set of discrete and effective strategies for how to operate your life it's an important thing. So it's the website is rabbidaniellappin.com, and that's also a place you can write in and communicate with me. So don't hesitate. Make sure you've got a you've got that website bookmarked or uh, easily accessible for when you need it. And uh, meanwhile, after the show, go along. And if you haven't yet, make sure you watch me teaching on video for half an hour on the first verse of Genesis. Really? How much is there to talk about on just seven words? In English, a few more, right? In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. But uh, I think you'll be astounded uh, because not only do I spend that half hour on the first seven words in Genesis, I don't actually even finish it all. I go as far as I can. So that's serious stuff, rabbidaniellappin.com. Now, uh, wherever you are, uh, the news that America is in serious decline is, is probably not good news because for many years already, possibly the majority of your productive life to date, um, the world has been a sort of America-facing world. You know, it was American entertainment and American food and American culture, and it was exported everywhere, American technology. And uh, sort of major changes are disruptive. It's one of the reasons that one of the things that happens and has been happening in the United States, which is terrible, is that as the administration of the country flipped between Democratic and Republican, you know, it was, it was Bill Clinton it was um, George W. Bush, and then it was Barack Obama, and then it was Donald Trump, 
and then it was back to Joe Biden. Each of these big flip-flops, it's not like it used to be in the 1940s and 1950s, where the differences were a lot less substantial. But today, these are major differences. And so what happens is that every time there's a new administration with an entirely different philosophy, um, the tax code changes, just to, to list one thing. And uh, the tax code keeping on changing regularly makes it very hard for business to plan and for business people to thrive. It's not a good thing. So major changes and major disruptions are not helpful. And so I don't think we can expect that the world will switch from an America-centric world to a China-centric world uh, without some turbulence. And And that isn't good. But no matter what's going on, the, the one thing that you should remember is that regardless of what's happening, you will be better off if your five Fs are in good shape. And the better shape you can put them in, the easier you will be able to handle anything that comes down the road. If it's good that comes down the road, that's even better. But if it's bad that comes down the road, if your physical fitness you've taken care of, you're strong, that's important. And if your finances are in good shape and you've got a lot of friends and they're good friends and your family is secure, meaning that there is a family culture and you have a large family. And this is why I say, by the way, that if, if you're a man and you have the choice of marrying two women, and they're both wonderful women, both are exactly the same, they're both equally beautiful and equally everything, but one of them is raised as a single child, and one is a, from a family of, uh, you know, seven or eight or nine children to take it up there, you know, you are much better off marrying a girl, if you're a guy, much better off marrying a girl who has a lot of siblings than a girl who's an only child. It's This is a reality because you have a bigger family network instantly, overnight. And I know, look, this is unfair to all the single kids listening, and I, I, I get that, and I'm sorry, I, I do understand it, and I, I share the anguish. You, you, you have plenty anguish. Um, you know, when when your parents age, everything's on you. When your parents inevitably, ultimately move on to an embrace with the Lord, uh, you're left by yourself. You you can't look back and share moments with brothers and sisters. Uh, I I strongly recommend if you are in a uh, uh, your family is in the beginning of its childbearing years. You really want to think very carefully before you, you confine yourself to only one or two children. It's, it's a serious thing. And uh, so now talking about marriage, yeah, you get a chance to expand your family by marrying uh, a woman. Or if you're a woman, you know, two ideal guys, both of them exceptional, both, both equally good looking and both ambitious and both have the same sense of humor and they both make you laugh, excepting one is a single kid. And the other one has a big family, a lot of siblings. Again, I say exactly the same thing to you, ladies. 
for heaven's sake, don't hesitate. Grab the guy who will give you an instant large family. And particularly true, of course, if it's a healthy family, and, and, and I'm, I'm stipulating that as a precondition, obviously. But uh, how wonderful to suddenly find that you've got a bunch of new sisters and brothers, and uh, you've got um, an in-laws who, who, who really care as much about you, almost as much about you as your own parents do. Uh, it's, it's a remarkable thing, this, this miracle of marriage. So um, you, you try now, even though the news is invariably bad, uh, you know, and, unless you are um, listening, and I have many listeners in China, I'm happy to say, uh, God bless you all. I know that you are probably listening with a smile on your faces saying, well, it's pretty good news from where we look and from where we sit. And, and I know you're absolutely right. I get it. Uh, but everybody else is sort of saying, uh, listen, do not allow yourself to become preoccupied with the bad news. Remain preoccupied with developing your five Fs. That's right. Stay fit. Keep physically fit and build your friendships and build your finances and build your family and build your faith for heaven's sake, because faith is an incredibly valuable part of this mix. You know, it's without faith, it's just the four things, and uh, you find there's something missing. You find that your ability to progress effectively and to drive yourself forward in the area of physical fitness and friendships and finances and family is diminished if you don't also have the ability to draw on your reservoir of faith. So there you've got these five things. You focus on them. And, um, and so much so that even the very first Hebrew, his name was Abraham, uh, the, God said to him in chapter 12 of Genesis, get moving, start, go somewhere, move. You know, Abraham says, uh, like, uh, where? God says, never mind, the where isn't the important thing. You know, start moving now. You've got to get going. And um, and Abraham, you know, uh, goes ahead and, and, and packs his suitcase and gets on his skateboard and he gets his family together and um, uh, they start going. And he says, you know, people say to him, where are you going? Where are you going? And he says, yeah, God will tell me when the time is right. And off he goes. What's going on here? Like, why is this... Uh, little section of Genesis told to us? And uh, the answer is another question. The other question is, why did God pick Abraham? Now, a few chapters earlier, God picked Noah and asked him to build an ark. And if I'd say to you, why did God pick Noah? It would take you only a minute or two of paging through the text. You know, go back to chapter 6, go back to chapter 5 of Genesis, and you'll see. It tells us that Noah was an exceptionally good person in, an, in, a, in a time and place where people were not really that good. He stood out as a noble human being. So that's why God spoke to him. And why did God speak to Abraham? Well, it's not clear there. Actually, we don't know anything about his background that would have made God want to speak to him. And I'm going to tell you the answer from ancient Jewish wisdom. 
Uh, it's an answer that uh, I will soon get to in scrolling through Scripture, but I'll give you a little preview. Why did God speak to Abraham? He didn't. He spoke to everybody. How do you like that? He spoke to everybody just as he speaks to everybody today. Start moving. Get out of your comfort zone. It's really, really important. Because as long as you stay in your comfort zone, you will remain exactly where you are. And progress comes from movement. Right? It's not an accident that movement is what generates electricity. If you put a coil of wire down on a magnet, absolutely nothing will happen. But it's only if you start moving that coil of wire around, in and out, up and down, round about, all of a sudden you can attach a light bulb to the end of that coil and the light bulb lights up, but only because of the movement. Movement provides energy. And you've got to be able to do that. What's more, it's interesting that a few chapters later, we finally find that Abraham's grandson, Jacob, has to go ahead and take a journey. This is in Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. And there it says that Jacob departed from Beersheba and he traveled to Haran. Okay, um, it's, it's a funny way of phrasing it, isn't it? You know, let's say that uh, you and I are, are living in Dallas. We're living in Dallas, Texas, and you say, oh, I, I notice you're packing your suitcase. Are you going on a trip? And I say, yeah. And you say, where are you going? I say, well, I'm leaving Dallas and going to San Francisco. Why would you say that? It's, you're not re relocating. You're just going for a, a visit. And I'd say, well, why tell me you're leaving Dallas? Just say, I'm going to San Francisco. That conveys all the necessary information. And the same thing would be true for Jacob. We only need to read a few of the previous chapters to know exactly where Jacob is located. And so Jacob, or as he's called in Hebrew, Yaakov, Yaakov is located there in Beersheba. So could have just said, and Jacob left on a journey to Haran. I know where he left from. It's where he is. No. Ancient Jewish wisdom tells us that it's very hard to leave where you are. And it's not talking only about a geographical journey. It's talking about a spiritual journey as well. If you've decided that today is the first day of the rest of your life and you're going to start doing things differently, it is very difficult to leave where you currently are. It really is. Where you currently are is that you wake up in the morning and you get dressed and you have breakfast and you jump in the car to go to work or you go to the next room and you turn on your Zoom or whatever. Um, and now you're saying, well, I'm going to change I'm actually going to provide myself with a very life-enhancing boundary between sleep and work. I'm actually going to start my day after I'm dressed. I'm going to pray. I'm actually going to spend a few minutes talking to God. That's all. I'm going to have a conversation with God. And you might say, well, it would be nice if God answered or if at least he said, mm-hmm, while you're talking to him. And the answer is, he does. You just got to listen carefully, that's all. And uh, then you say, and then after that, I'm going to do some exercise. And only then am I going to leave 
to go to work. That departing from your current way of life to the new way of life is really, really hard. And it's part of the journey. And so that's why chapter 28, verse 10 says, and Jacob departed from this place and he journeyed to his destination. And the idea there is the same as with Abraham. It's very difficult. God says, get moving very hard, very hard. And when you do it, well, you discover that you now are able to do things you could never do until you are willing to actually leave your old way of living. And so why did God pick Abraham? He didn't. He said that to everybody, just like he says it to everybody right now. And if you listen really carefully, you'll hear God telling you, get moving. Get out of your comfort zone. Stop making tomorrow exactly like today. Because if you do that, tomorrow will be just like yesterday. If you want tomorrow to be something fresh and new, you've got to do something today that's different from the way you did yesterday. Start journeying. Move. And that makes all the difference. Tell me this doesn't apply to you in your life. Come on. I dare you to. Come on. Write, write to me in the comments. Tell me, oh, it didn't apply to me. I've got no, nowhere to go. I've got nothing to do, nowhere to go. Um, no, 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 no journeys necessary for me. I'm in a fine place right where I am. Uh, I, I don't expect that from too many people. And, you know what's really terrific? And, um, and that is that where God tells Abraham to get moving in Genesis chapter 12, he actually then promises him the five F's. That's the amazing thing. He actually tells him, and I will give you this and that, because what are the things when you journey, you know, what are you hoping to improve? You want to improve your finances and your family, and you want to find new friends, because if you're traveling, you do want to expand. And even if this is a metaphor for changing your life, part of that is more friends, and part of that is faith, and of course, physical fitness. And in the ancient Hebrew text of chapter 12, that's exactly what the Lord promises Abraham. You start traveling. I will promise you that those five F's that you need in your life, oh yeah, they're going to be coming right along there for you. But you have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to leave where you are right now. And that is difficult for everybody to do. There is no question. I'm not saying this is easy. Now, you know what's really interesting is that um, Jacob sets off on this journey. And uh, what's he going for? Well, one of the things he's going for is marriage. That's right. And um, very early on, he meets Rachel, who becomes his wife, one of his wives eventually. And uh, you this is an important thing, right? And so among the five F's, one of the F's stands for family. And the beginning of family is marriage. Right? You build a family by marrying somebody. If you're a woman, you marry a man. If you're a man, you marry a woman. Do I have to actually stress that? <laughs> yeah, I probably do. And, uh, and you marry another person of the opposite sex, with with whom you share a common vision of the family you'd like to build. Do you know that I have spoken to single people 
who get engaged and I say to them, so tell me about the conversations you had with your fiance about the kind of family you want to raise. And they've never actually discussed family. Can you believe such a thing? They've sort of had vague discussions about, oh, do you want children? Yeah, I want, uh, I'd like two children now and four children, whatever. But, but what about how this family will be structured? What will be the family culture? Um, surely that's the most exciting part of dating or courting, I should say. Surely the best part of it is to to visualize together, to basically design your family. That's that's what it's all about. And then when you've got that worked out and you've agreed on that, well, then you can go ahead and get engaged. But but that's that's what you're supposed to be doing, not discussing movies or TV shows. I mean, really. So um, yeah, you know you you you. You, you got to get married. So for single people listening, yeah, of course, of course you need to, to get married. And it's not, it's not easy for anybody. It is a journey, right? Get moving. Get out of your comfort zone. Uh, it's very comfortable where you are. You might have a sort of vague sense of something missing in your life and an occasional feeling of loneliness, particularly if a lot of your friends are getting married. But, um, uh, you know, and, and I say to guys all the time, uh, you got to get married. They say, why? Why do you say that? And I said, because I'm a perfectly selfish person. I want you to get married because if you're married, my society is better than it is if you're single. Because single men are social dynamite. Single men constitute the most destructive forces in society. And single men, on top of that, don't work very hard. They don't produce very much wealth. And you'll remember that the only way to produce wealth is by satisfying the needs and the desires of God's other children, including me. So, yes, I want you, Mr. Single Man, to, con to, to, to form a wonderful marriage absolutely ASAP, as soon as possible. Because when you do that, you're going to start working harder, and that's good for me, and you're going to be off the streets at night causing trouble for other people. That's also good for me. So yeah, please get married soon rather than late. Go ahead. And uh, sometimes, you know, guys will say to me, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to, you know, I just haven't found the right woman. And for anybody who says that or even believes that, let me tell you something my response to you, I don't even have to know you personally yet, although I wish I did, but I can already tell you, hey, you know what? You don't even deserve the right woman. In fact, if the right woman asked my advice about you, I'd say run for your life. Stay away from him. He thinks marriage is about finding the right woman. So you really, really do not want to hitch your wagon to him at the present time. No, that's uh, you're not looking for the right woman. That's not the right thing. What the reason you're not married is not because you haven't found the right woman. It's because you are not yet the right man. I mean, that's pretty straightforward, really. Work on that rather. And then we might actually get somewhere. And so uh, in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob, we discover, actually devotes himself to becoming the right man. And sure enough, takes him seven years before he marries Rachel and Leah. And uh, he's focused on family, one of his five Fs. At the same time, he's also focusing on finances. He's building that up. And at the same time, physical fitness, 
uh, yeah, that's right. He rolls the stone off the well all by himself. It used to take all the other shepherds working together to roll this giant stone off the mouth of the well. Jacob can do it himself. Yeah, that's right. Because one of the five F's is physical fitness. That's right. And so he's got his faith. He's building his finances. He's building his family. And uh, then we will see friendships come as well. But first of all, God says to him, you know, everything's going to be great. And jo uh, Jacob says to God, you know, how, how can you tell me that? I've got a brother called Esau, who's one of the most powerful men in the country. He hates the very ground I walk on. And not only that, but he is interested in trying to kill me. And what's more, he's got a son called Eliphaz who has a son called Amalek, and he has formed a grandfather-grandson relationship with Amalek, and he's told Amalek that no matter what happens into the future, you and your descendants must always be devoted and dedicated above all else to the destruction of Israel. And uh, there are a number of recognition characteristics that Amalek has, um, one of them, you know, I discussed the others at great length in, in scrolling through scripture, but um, one of them for interest's sake right now is that Amalek is willing to die for the mission that his grandfather Esau uh, placed upon his shoulders. And, um, and that's it, literally willing to die. So um, how do we see this? Well, one thing is that we see that the uh, the nature of Amalek is not biological. It's not racial, right? Nothing in the five books of Moses is racial. Uh, it's all spiritual. And so in the same way that uh, uh, Judaism isn't a race, but it's a spiritual affiliation that anybody can join, uh, so it is that Amalek is a spiritual affiliation, and uh, they remain dedicated not only to the destruction of Israel, but they're willing to die in the attempt. And so, not surprisingly, uh, Germany, Nazi Germany, acquires from other nations in the past, I don't have time to go into it now, but in other nations in the past, 1930s, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party acquire the spiritual qualities of Amalek and they wrap themselves entirely in the spiritual cloak of Amalekian thinking. And so sure enough, one of the prime objectives of Nazi Germany in World War II was destruction of the Jews. Like that's of paramount importance. And uh, so, you know, you look at May 1940, and the British Third Army is being encircled in Europe by the victorious Wehrmacht, which uh, using their Panzer uh, technologies, they are racing through Europe. And the British Third Army is, is in a very bad situation. They end up trapped in the Belgian port city called Dunkirk. Uh, there are a few movies about this, by the way, which are not very accurate, but, uh, but you do get the basic idea. And then through an amazing, phenomenal thing, the people of England are galvanized by Winston Churchill to bring their boats, and, and England is a, is a boating nation, you know, uh, bring their boats and cross the 20 miles of the channel and pick up as many soldiers as they could off the beaches of Dunkirk. And, and so it was, from rowboats to, to yachts, 
little boats to big boats, everybody started heading over across the channel and uh, they rescued nearly, in fact, they did rescue 300,000 um, soldiers of the British Third Army. They brought them home. And uh, what they were not able to bring home was the machinery, the trucks, the uh, uh, the ammunition and so on. They had to leave some of that behind. They destroyed a good deal of it, unlike somebody else I know. And uh, what they left behind, by the way, the entire Third Army was a small fraction of what somebody else I know has just abandoned in Afghanistan to the Taliban. So... Um, then Winston Churchill gave this great speech to the English people uh, right after the rescue in May 1940. And he said, we thank God for the delivery of Dunkirk. But at the same time, I have to tell you that wars are not won by retreats. And make no mistake about it, that was a retreat. But it was a strategic retreat. And um, the Third Army is outnumbered by the Nazi forces. They're going to be annihilated. So you retreat. But uh, not if you're Amalek. If you're Amalek, you die trying. You do not give up because they are driven by the fundamental drive of getting rid of Jews. So the world should no longer be a world of a biblical worldview, but it should become a barbaric world. And so uh, that's that's what happens. And um, we, we find this Amalek cropping up again and again. Um, at the moment, there's no question that if you look at the recognition characteristics of Amalek, uh, they are, uh, it's found today in uh, the world of Islam, where the uh, Arab nations could achieve peace and prosperity and they would win so much goodwill from the world translated into money from the United Nations. All they have to do is say, you know, three words, Israel may exist. We acknowledge Israel's right to exist. That's all, that, five words and everything would open up and they don't, they won't do it because they've got Amalekian characteristics. That's why they've specialized and taught the world the uh, drama of suicide bombing because only Amalek is willing to die constantly again and again in order to um, achieve or to to make progress in his mission of wiping out Israel uh, there's another characteristic of Amalek I don't want to go into it in great detail now but let's say that the dream of 70 young ladies awaiting dead warriors in Allah's paradise is an essential recognition characteristic of Amalek and so uh, um, it's it's it, it's just interesting that uh, that the Nazis really possessed the characteristic of Amalek at the time and um, when they failed to conquer Stalingrad and it's getting colder and colder it's the fall of 1941 the winter is approaching they've been so victorious up till now things have gone so well for the united for uh, for uh, for the for the nazis that um what what does a sane person do when stalingrad turns out to be a far more formidable 
challenge than they anticipated and winter is arriving you know hello has anybody heard of napoleon in 1812 napoleon took his french army to beat russia and the russian winter defeated napoleon so now russian winter is coming you'd think the nazis under adolf hitler would say you know what let's pull back for the winter we'll come back in the spring and we'll take care of the russians then but hitler's orders prohibit a retreat and the end result is they're all going to be wiped out by a combination of desperate russians by the million fighting for their lives along with their biggest ally the winter that's not how america works not how israel works not how any sane army works and this turns out to be the very first defeat that the germans suffer in world war ii more than one million wehrmacht soldiers die horribly only a small number die from russian bullets most of them freeze to death go home stay warm build up your strength come back in the spring <laughs> not if you're amalek absolutely not you see that's how it works so the nazis are fighting literally for their lives this is a terrible terrible time the winter has come stalingrad is not yielding and they suddenly realize the wehrmacht generals in charge of the uh, the the war on the eastern front realize that there are between 40 and 60,000 officers back in germany and back in poland who are engaged in killing jews in auschwitz and the other death camps these are comfortable warm well-fed guys and so they send a desperate message from stalingrad from the siege of stalingrad and they call back to the uh, the german uh, chiefs of staff and the chiefs of staff go to adolf hitler and they say listen we 50 to 60000 well ready warm uh, strong ss officers these guys can make all the difference we can actually take stalingrad that would turn the tide and if at the same time you could let us have all the railways that are being used to transport Jews to the death camps and take those trains and those 50,000 officers and fill them up with material and clothing and fuel and get them out on the railways to the Eastern Front, we, we, we actually succeed. The, um, the, uh, the men will take over the fighting from the exhausted, freezing German soldiers. Anyways... Uh, we know from Albert Speer's diaries that Hitler flew into a rage. <laughs> he, he yelled and screamed and, uh, and, 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 and raged that his soldiers don't understand what this war is all about. It's not about railways and men. It's about getting rid of the Jews. And he's disgusted that they can even think that it's worthwhile halting the extermination of the Jews in order to salvage Stalingrad. He's an Amalekian, obviously. And uh, he says, this is what the war is all about. It's about killing Jews. No retreat from Stalingrad under any circumstances. And uh, sure enough, um, that is the beginning of the end. Really? I mean, by December 1941, the German army on the east is doomed. It's going to be destroyed. And December the 7th, America joins the war. 
And from that moment, the Allies are breathing a sigh of relief. The tide has turned. There's still a lot of fighting to be done, said Churchill, and he was right. But the tide has turned. And those in the know, some of the few remaining Germans who hadn't lost their senses, some of the older uh, generals who preceded Nazism, they knew this was very bad already. And... Um, and, and many of them were already trying to find ways maybe to assassinate Hitler. Something has to be done because this is now going to destroy Germany. Well, that's what Amalek does. In the attempt to vanquish the Hebrews, they will be willing to die. And that's exactly what happens. Now, what makes all this so very interesting is that in 1939, Hitler negotiated a non-aggression pact with Russia, um, the Ribbentrop-Molotov agreement, and um, this was just before the outbreak of war. The reason was Hitler knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had to deal with England first, and the last thing he wanted was the risk of a two-front war, that he's still trying to deal with England, and Russia seizes the opportunity to attack him from the east. So he makes a deal with the Russians, he placates them, and makes a deal that after the war, Russia will be able to expand its territory into Poland and some of the Baltic states. And um, these guys, uh, the two foreign secretaries of Germany and Russia meet, and they hammered out the um, Molotov and Ribbentrop Pact. And, uh, and it's all arranged in the summer of 1939. And that agreement was that for at least 10 years, Russia and Germany will never fight with one another. <coughs> so Stalin loves this idea because his army just wasn't ready for any fun and games anyhow. So he accepted it. And what happened with Germany, Germany now doesn't have to worry about Russia starting up with them on the east while they're dealing with France and England in the west. So um, May 1940 was the biggest military disaster that England had had in this fresh war, and, uh, and they're about to lose the entire Third Army and all the material. The men get rescued, but everything has to start being rebuilt from scratch. England is basically on its knees. America doesn't come into the war until the end of 41. So what is the next thing for Hitler to do, obviously? All right? Remember... I'm talking now before attacking Russia. He's got a peace treaty with Russia. He doesn't have to worry about them. So forget about the East. Deal with the West, which means you've already demolished France, which did have a big army, but it's now finished. And now finish off England. You knew all along you're going to have to invade England. You've been preparing for it. So that's what you've got to happen. That's what's got to happen. Everybody saw that. And uh, in, in fact... Uh, huge numbers of ships and barges were being prepared on the ports, the European ports of the English Channel, that would ferry the German army over to the beaches of England. And that was when, hit, uh, when uh, Winston Churchill gave his famous speech. And he said, look, they are going to invade. They have to, because they cannot win the war until they subjugate us. And so an invasion is inevitable. They're going to come, and that's when Churchill said, we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them on the roads, we will never surrender, because they were expecting Hitler to do the obvious, sane, logical thing. And Hitler instead does something really weird. He leaves England 
giving it a chance to catch its breath and replenish and re-strengthen and to start getting material from Roosevelt in uh, America. And Hitler turns around and attacks Russia in June 1941 instead of invading England that same summer. It's madness. And um, it's fascinating. And um, I, I think to myself sometimes, what would have happened to the Jews of the world if Hitler would have attacked England? He would have invaded England. Great. And then he could have dealt with Russia at his leisure. And at that point, it's probably unlikely that a single Jew would have survived from Europe. And um, not only that, but England, America wouldn't have come into the side of the in, into the war if England had been invaded by Germany, and England's king and cabinet would have had to move to America. Uh, England, you know, at that point, I don't know that America would have been involved. So it really would have been a very, very different world. And so one of the questions is, why? Why does Germany attack Russia? And again, the answer, it's weird. It's truly unbelievable. But that is, there were very few Jews in England. The Russia was full of Jews, had a huge population of Jews. And in fact, the majority of the Jews that were murdered by the Nazis in World War II were living under Russian rule. And so that is why Hitler turned to Russia instead of to England, because he could more rapidly home in on his ultimate goal, even though it ended up losing him the war and, of course, his life. He ended up committing suicide rather than fall into the hands of the Russians whom he had betrayed. And I'll tell you that when the Russians did, now we're talking, you know, 1944, 45, uh, as the Russians were pushing into Germany, the brutality and the cruelty and the unthinkable, hideous monstrosities that they inflicted on the civilian German population, um, yeah, it's frightful. It, you literally, I, I mean, I, I feel sorry for particularly what the women of East Germany endured as Russia invaded. And that was because of the fury that Russia felt at the betrayal that Germany violated the peace agreement that had been negotiated in 39 and betrayed them by attacking them in uh, summer 1941. It's, it's really, really crazy stuff. But it shows that the biblical blueprint really does give you a pretty good picture of how history plays out. And the war ends, and the spirit of Amalek leaves Germany, which has been completely demolished, and uh, Germany, America is going to rebuild Germany in an image of itself, and Germany is going to become part of NATO and part of the uh, American New World Alliance. And so what happens to the spirit of Amalek? Well, it moves over to the Arabs, sure enough. And uh, indeed, prior to uh, Islam in the 7th century, there was no difficulty between Jews and Arabs. None what, they were both from the seed of Abraham. Uh, the Arabic religion was very close to Judaism. It was an Abramidic faith. And indeed, 
um, Jews lived comfortably in Arab lands until Muhammad came along. And Muhammad turned the Arabs into Muslims. And that changes everything. And uh, sure enough, once Islam comes, we find that there's an implacable hatred between Muslims and Jews. And um, and it's Islam that is responsible. And it's Islam in the 1950s that acquires the spiritual mantle of Amalek. And so sure enough, uh, we find the unmistakable identifying characteristics of Amalek in Islamic Jihad. And uh, it's interesting that the states that are, shall we say, um, not hardcore religious, they are certainly Muslims, but they are more interested in building up their states, finances, and economies than they are in, you know, doing uh, suicidal actions. Those would be the Gulf states. And uh, I can tell you that my experiences are, are no different in places like uh, Qatar and uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai, uh, as I have. And I've been in those places, and um, I, I entered each one somewhat nervously. Uh, you know, I'm wearing a, uh, a hat on my head. I'm, I'm very unmistakably Jewish. My passport is filled with Israel visa stamps. And um, not only does nobody bat an eyelid, but when I actually said to one of the immigration officers coming into Abu Dhabi, I said, look, I'm, I'm only here for a couple of days. When I leave, I hope I'm not going to have any trouble. He said, absolutely not. He said, particularly, we know you're Jewish, he said, and, and we, we respect you. You'll be fine. And sure enough, I had, I had a wonderful time in those countries. I, I enjoyed it very much. Um, in uh, Qatar, Qatar, the only trouble I had, the only unpleasantness I had, was with officials from the Al Jazeera Broadcasting Network, which is headquartered in Qatar. And, um, but other than that, with people, it was great, you know, no problem at all. Uh, but where Islam is at its most fervent, there's darkness and barbarism and hatred because of the Amalek characteristic. Uh, but wherever Islam takes second place to finance and to business, it's much quieter. And, uh, and that is why the uh, remarkable um, Abram Accords between some of the Gulf states and uh, Israel have taken place. It's, it's extraordinary. But where Amalek is weakest... That's where uh, these countries thrive and do well. And the key message that uh, we see that comes out of this, you know, breakthrough, start traveling, leave your comfort zone, start growing, commit yourself to a new destination, start off by leaving where you're most comfortable, moving on. And that way you're able to focus on building up your five F's and one of them is family, which means that starts off with marriage. And then eventually after marriage, you start building the family by bringing new children into the world. They are your children. They become your sons and daughters. And you need to know when is the time to start introducing them to your value system when do you start building the culture of the family when your child turns 13 
No, that's much too late. Okay, fine. When your child turns five, no, much too late. So when are you supposed to do it? When are you supposed to start educating your child, making sure that your child is not just your biological offspring, but your spiritual child as well, who child who carries your values? Now, to start teaching a child the words, thou shalt not, you know, when the child is five years old, is way too late. So when, when does the education of your child begin? When the child's born? Uh-uh. It's actually nine months too late. You're already behind the ball. So when is it? Well, when the two of you are conceiving the child. That's when it begins. What are you talking about? There's not even a child yet. How can it begin then? Well, you know, if, if you're a good teacher, you know that days and days before the children come back to school for the start of the new year, you are there preparing the schoolroom. You're putting up posters on the wall and you're preparing the classroom and you're preparing your lessons. Long before the child shows up, the teacher is already preparing the classroom. Similarly here, nine months before the child shows up, you and your spouse are already preparing the classroom, namely the relationship between the two of you. And that's why Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 5 speaks about marriage. And it doesn't say husband and wife should share joy together. It says very explicitly, and, and by the way, I have seen some wrong translations about this, but in the Lord's language, in the Hebrew of 24.5 in Deuteronomy, it's really very clear. It says, and the husband should bring ecstasy and joy to his wife. And this is the key, that unlike animals, as far as we know, when a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, prepare to bring a new life into the world, which may or may not happen, but what, what they're focused on is not their own satisfaction. Each one is focused on the other. And it is that focus on the other's delight that produces the ultimate of this unification. And so the husband and wife are preparing themselves to learn that bringing happiness to others is the source of ultimate pleasure for oneself. And this is just one part of this big, amazing book of marriage lessons, which I teach in scrolling through Scripture, because we have to have completion in ourselves. And part of that is learning that before a child even arrives in your family, the two of you have to learn that sharing and giving to one another is the most delightful and joyful thing imaginable. And now a child that enters that classroom and that environment is a blessed child. Child is in wonderful condition, wonderful shape. And that's how these things work. And that's why it is that uh, the five F's are emphasized with Jacob's journeys and they're emphasized with Abraham's journeys. And they're emphatically emphasized in your own journey. When you decide, you know what, I've been in this place for long enough. 
it's time for me to move. I'm ready to leave this place. I know it's not going to be easy, but I'm ready to leave this place. I am going to move on to a new destination. I'm going to leave my comfort zone and I'm going to start doing the things my head tells me I have to do at a time my head tells me when I have to do them. I will not be following my heart. I will be following my head and I'm going to figure out the things I have to do to build up my faith, to build up my physical fitness, to build up my finances, to build up my friendships, and to build up my family. And in so doing, no matter how stormy are the, uh, the, 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 the storms and hurricanes that swirl around the foundations of your life, as long as your five Fs are in good shape, you have the very best chance of sailing through it sublimely. So the website again, you rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com. Be in touch. Uh, by the way, there is also a free book you can download there called The Holistic You. Go for it because it uh, elaborates in more detail how each of these five F's are absolutely essential for the totality that we call shalom. Shalom, we know, is the word for peace, but peace is the secondary meaning. The real meaning is completion, because true peace and harmony and tranquility can only come from a state of total completion, totality. So those are some of the concepts you will find at the website. Uh, you will listen to the delightful 30-minute program on scrolling through Scripture. Enjoy that. And um, please do, let's expand our community by letting other people know about the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, I, I know you're doing that. Thanks very much indeed. Just want to encourage you again. It really does work. It is paying off. And um, we will be together with the Lord's help next week. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, wishing you a week of great progress with your faith and your family, with your fitness, with your friends and your uh, finances. God bless.